The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. While the United States has been paying attention to the Middle East, China just went into, went into Africa and said, hey, here's $30 billion. We would like to put a pipeline from Juba all the way across to Mombasa. Is that okay with you guys? We don't care how you spend it. We don't give any issues to anyone about how they spent their money. We just don't want you to attack our pipeline. And of course, these, these, these pseudo dictators and even dictators themselves take this money, spend it how they want. You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Gall. Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria. These are the places we think of when we think of America's global war on terror. But the war is global. It's right there in the title. And Africa is increasingly one of the fronts in that war, but it's one that we don't know much about. Here to help us understand that war is retired Green Beret Derek Gannon. Gannon is a veteran of the global war on terror and a journalist who covers the war in the Horn of Africa for SoftRep. Derek, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, so I want to start off with a new story from last October. Green Beret Sergeant First Class Zachary Bannister died while on duty in Kenya. And though his death was not combat-related, it's still a Special Operations Forces forces soldier deployed in Kenya. So my first question for you, Derek, is why was there a Green Beret in Kenya? Well, uh, that's the first thing a lot of people have asked me, and uh, there's been a lot of speculation that there's a shadow war of sorts going on in, uh, in Africa itself. And I, I won't prove or disprove that, but basically what Sergeant First Class Bannister was doing in, in Kenya is that U.S. Army Special Forces, or Green Berets, Doing in Africa is what they do is they do a lot of training operations with uh, host nation military. And what they do is they go into these these uh, locations where they have some issues with military structure, insurgency, Islamic or otherwise. And they're looking to clean some sort of professional military experience from the U.S. military's professional soldiers, which usually are the Green Berets, who are basically trainers that show up and they can train host nation forces into a better fighting force. Their missions are usually triple fold. They go in and they usually set up uh, training facilities for almost from basic to advanced marksmanship, patrolling, tactics, logistics, command structure to kind of uh, assist nations into what I you know, basically was saying was kind of develop a more robust professional military. What that team was doing there, I don't know the exact mission, but I have conducted these operations before where you just go in and you uh, are assigned to a host nation major command. And then you basically are parsed out to their individual infantry units to teach them basic to intermediate to advanced uh, infantry skills and tactics so then they can utilize them themselves and conduct, plan and execute operations completely alone and without U.S. Green Berets or U.S. forces on the ground. All right. And what's the American military presence there like? Where are the bases other than special operations forces? Who else is there? Uh, major military bases that I can believe that, that, that everyone can really know about is, is that we have a, uh, a naval expeditionary force camp or, you know, uh, expeditionary base, which is based in uh, Djibouti. 
and it's been there for quite some time since the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. That's pretty much the most overtly major ins installation that's there. There's also uh, AFRICOM bases, outposts, if you will, in Nairobi. And these are just liaison positions for the larger major command of U.S. AFRICOM or Afri uh, African Command or AFRICOM. But there, as far as bases, as far as permanent installations, uh, I don't know of any permanent installation that the U.S. military has in the Horn itself or in Africa itself. They do have a lot of uh, installations on top of host nation bases that they use in conjunction with training and other operations. But as far as the most overt one that, that most people can, you know, I guess, I sh you know, use the word Google. Google is the, uh, is the Camp Lemonier uh, in Djibouti. Right. And that one was in the news yesterday as of our recording because China has opened a military base, I think, just four miles down the road from that one in Djibouti, correct? Uh, yeah, I, I've heard conflicting reports, but yeah, it's it's basically right across the bay. It's right across the Gulf uh, that, that feeds into the Aden, uh, Gulf of Aden, uh, and, and which is a major international uh, seaway for the permanent fiber of most of the West and to include China. That's actually an interesting development. The government of Djibouti, I want to say in 2015, 2016, started, I won't say clandestine negotiations, but China came to the Djiboutian government and basically started saying, hey, this is what we can provide for you. We'd really like to put a base right smack dab right here. And their direct, this, this, and this base is, now that it's built, it's, it, it was finished in late, I want to say late 2016, possibly early 2017, about February, March of 2017, because the Chinese can build things really rather rapidly. The negotiation process was, was relatively short. The Chinese offered the government of Djibouti about $12 billion over 10 years in infrastructural improvement. It was a huge sweet honeypot for the, the, the government of Djibouti to take because Djibouti, the country of Djibouti, they don't really have anything of natural resources or, or anything that they can, they can commodify or trade. So the, what they actually do commodify is their location in relation to the Middle East and the North African Hot spots, if you will. I mean, they're, they're, you can see the furthest point of Yemen from the furthest point of, I mean, you could see right across that, that strait into the, into, uh, you know, the a, uh, AQAP or the Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is kind of somewhat Yemeni's stronghold, which is why the United States and the United Kingdom to include the French and the Italians, they all have, have had installations in, in Djibouti, specifically in and around uh, Camp Lemonier, which is one of the major bases there, which is, which is rather interesting that Camp Lemonier is there. And this is why the United States is, is really not happy with the government of Djibouti and China. Now, China's p position on this was, is that this base, would, of which they spend $12 million a year for a 10-year lease, on this on this plot of land is literally right across. If you want to, you know, it's like a Hatfield and McCoy distance from each other from the United States base of Camp Lemonier. They can see one another. It's directly across from one another. So you can see where the U.S. would have some serious issues because of what who and what is housed in Camp Lemonier and what the operations are doing, what they what kind of operations they have in Camp Lemonier. Well, what what are those what are those operations in Camp Lemonier? So. The history of Camp Lemonier is it's been there for a while. It was a French Foreign Legion outpost for quite for a long, long time. And the French Foreign Legion and the French military are still have a presence there. 
the U.S. moved in during, um, I want to say, late 1990s, almost early 2000s, and didn't really start investing into Djibouti and Camp Lemonier until right after 9-11, when the global war on terror started actually kicking up. Uh, they started realizing that there was a lot of terrorist organizations and terrorist groups that were operating in and around the Middle East, North Africa, or the MENA region. And they used it really as a logistical, strategic jump-off point to, for, you know, most of what sent in, most of what you see now is special operations, which are doing global, the, the counterinsurgency, counterterror programs for the global war on terror. Once we started seeing a drawback from Afghanistan, the drawdown of, of uh, conventional U.S. troops in Afghanistan, which we all know how that kind of floundered a little bit. The Obama administration started investing heavily in Djibouti, namely the infrastructure of the camp itself. Now, inside the camp, it's what they overtly tell you is it's it's under the major command of, of the Navy because it's a naval expeditionary base. It has the naval uh, frigates and warships coming through there on a regular basis. It is a kind of a hardship tour. But along there, CENCOM moved a lot of their operations, their, their, their for, forward-facing operations, to Camp Lemonier itself, which if CENCOM goes there and they're doing counterinsurgency and counterterrorist operations, then you have the Joint Special Operations Command who is there as well. And on top of that, you have the Central Intelligence Agency uh, drone operations go in and out of uh, Camp Lemonier uh, exclusively, which is basically pointed towards what you have in Libya, uh, the Sinai, which is kind of heating up with the Sinai Islamic State in the Sinai Peninsula, as long as, uh, along with what you have going on in, in Yemen with the AQAP or the Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So it really sounds like that base is the brain for America's global war on terror. It has become the de facto strategic point for the global war on terror, yes. Once, the, once we saw the drawdown of Afghanistan and then the eventual complete withdrawal of U.S. troops and coalition troops from Iraq, we really didn't honestly have any somewhat forward operating bases. Now, I'm going to only speak from the special operations point of view for special operations to conduct their counterinsurgency, counterterror operations. Djibouti, which was already being used for those types of ops, if you will, in North Africa, middle, the North African, East African, Horn of Africa area, really got an influx of logistical cash flow. And they built that entire region up to operate exclusively. I won't say exclusively, but to push off tier one, which are high level elite commando operations down to, you know, uh, special forces, Green Beret, intelligence gathering, logistics, logistics missions down to, uh, training operations for host nations, as we discussed earlier. All right, so what does China want? China has invested heavily, heavily in Africa. While the United States has been paying attention to the Middle East during the global war on terror for not only what the overt term was to, you know, to, to staunch the flow of terrorism and, and you know, in, inject democracy and all those happy words that we always love, that we've heard for years, China has silently started doing resource grabs. And that's their main operation as, as, as far as their global expansion was first to gather the, the necessary resources that they need to facilitate and develop their military expansion, which they've been they've been really hitting on in the last four years. So the point that the, that the Chinese came to with the, the Djiboutian government was that they had an issue in Libya where they had close to, I think it was near 60 to upwards to 100,000 foreign nationals working on Chinese 
infrastructure and uh, natural resource businesses or operations, mainly oil in the Libyan plains where the Tuaregs were. And once that that civil war, that, that Arab Spring turned into a bloody civil war in Libya, the Chinese didn't have any forward operating bases to evacuate their nationals. Their main reason for the for this base, if you will, in Djibouti was, was a contingency for that because they couldn't get their Navy ships there fast enough. It took them a long time. They got they eventually got some of their ships there and they could only get out a handful of folks. And the, and the Chinese government ended up having to pay out of pocket for commercial flights to fly into Libya to get their people out. So they used that as a, as a negotiating point. And what they told the world and the United Nations was, well, we need a forward operating base, sort of speak, strictly for logistics purposes. This base that they have, which, by the way, can house up to 10,000 Chinese troops. There's only 4,000, give or take, in Camp Lemonier for the coalition that's, that's, that uses those places. The Chinese can house up to 10,000 at this, at this current base that they have in Obak. Like I said, which as you said, is right four miles across the street. It's it's an it's on the point point Obak. They're basically it was, it was I've been telling the international community that think no no this is a this is this is a logistics outpost. It's also designed to have its the Chinese Navy, which is being uh, modernized, to protect the international seaway commerce of export that the Chinese use through the Gulf of Aden down into the Indian Ocean, because they now they also said. That the main reason was to protect, like I said, to protect their national interests, to ensure that there's that the their ships, which have been getting hit, like every other ship has been getting hit uh, along the Gulf of Aden, along the coast of Somalia, uh, with piracy. Their their main operation and main mission for that uh, was to protect those seaways and their their nation's national interests, exports that were coming out of the region, which I find interesting. Because if you think about uh, what's going on in Somalia, specifically in the southwest state, and I don't know if you want to get into this, but in the southwest state, Eric Prince and his Chinese-owned Frontier Services Group have just won a major contract. Well, let's, let's pause for a break here real quick, and then I want to get into that when we come back. You're listening to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt, and we are on with retired Green Beret Derek Gannon. All right, you're back on War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. We're here with Derek Gannon, and he is telling us about East Africa. Derek, right before the break, you were saying you were going to talk about Eric Prince in Somalia. And, and give our audience a refresher on who Eric Prince is real quick. Well, Eric Prince is, uh, as if no one really uh, has been following him or actually knows of him, is he's the former founder and CEO of a private military company named Blackwater. And Blackwater came into fame during the early height of the global war on terrorism and when a lot of contracting and contractors were in Iraq and there was several incidences of you know, U.S. Blackwater contractors, um, you know, basically, can, you know, having some fratricide issues, shooting civilians. And I don't want to say running amok because, unfortunately, I know because of my background in special forces, I, I, I have a few friends that have worked with Blackwater or it's or it's, it's redesignated itself three or four times Z or Academy and they're good guys, but there's always some, there's always, there was always some issues with. So Eric Prince is kind of like the, if you want to use his last name, the Prince of private militaries. Okay. So a, a few years back, he became, I guess, the new head of a private 
I don't want to say military, but private security corporation or company that is basically Chinese owned. It's called the Frontier Services Group. Now, he went to Beijing and proposed this new private industry, private security company to the major investors in China. And a state-owned investment company purchased the majority of the proposal and is basically the, the sole, pretty much the sole investor, sole owner of the Frontier Services Group. And since then, Eric Prince, Eric Prince and his Chinese-owned Frontier Services Group has really been trying to expand in Africa itself and actually now currently Afghanistan. But to kind of reiterate that with the Chinese base, the Chinese, the Chinese naval base in Djibouti, they're, they're touting that that's going to be used for security along the Somali coast. But uh, a couple of months back, Eric Prince's Frontier Services Group had just won a security contract and a development contract for Southwest State in southern Somalia. This sounds a whole lot like the African version of the South China Seas to me. Yes, it's all a part of China's plan for what they call a string of pearls. The string of pearls kind of scenario is, is China building all those islands up in Spratly, in the Spratly Islands region in the South China Sea. It just, it just all of a sudden just cropping up these, you know, Lego, Lego land like bases, which they can only, I mean, we, they're not, they don't call them bases. Some of them are, are touted as desalination centers, but then you, you see the 3D uh, satellite overlay images and they've got missiles, missile systems, uh, anti-aircraft missiles. Uh, fighter planes, bays, and runways that can that can basically land B-52s on them, and they're just saying that well, this is the Chinese are trying to are trying to basically connect what they call a string of pearls, and the the new base of Djibouti is one of those pearls. And you're right, uh, Eric Prince and his uh, Frontier Services Group could be the southern Somalia of East African coastline. Another another pearl in that string as well. And what's interesting about southern Somalia and Somalia as a whole is it's it's Somalia has been pretty war torn for for decades. It's, it hasn't really had a functional government since this latest presidency, which he uh, you know the the president Formaggio, which that's his his last name actually means cheese. It's it's that's his last. But he's a good guy. Mohammed Formaggio is a very good president. Seems to be a a quality leader. And he's really kind of leaning heavy on with the U.S. to try to push out that terrorist group, Al-Shabaab. But, this, and this, but the, the thing that's so interesting about Southwest State and Somalia, where Eric Prince just won his contract, is that this, the southern portion of Somalia has rather large pockets of uh, held territory by Al-Shabaab. But what's interesting about what Frontier Services Group is trying to do is they're basically trying to establish agricultural and infrastructural bases, airports, infrastructure improvements such as ports, deep water ports, ports that have the potential to have oil terminals. So in southern Somalia, no one's really been able to get in there because of the insurgency terrorist threat that's been happening in the southern regions through, you know, with the African Union mission in Somalia, the UN-backed, you know, peacekeeping mission, has been really fighting for quite some time with the Al-Shabaab. But what's interesting about the, the Frontier Services Group and Eric Prince getting in there is that there's been a lot of, of resource projection of southern Somalia as it's just they, they, they holistic. A lot of people that are, they analyze natural resources believe that southern Somalia and the, the southwest state is sitting on a, a potentially massive oil field, an untapped oil field. And this kind of falls along what kind of falls along the motif of what China has been doing in Africa is finding these areas and getting in there fast, quick with a lot of money, no questions asked and how it's spent, 
via human rights violations or you know, genocide that you that you can that you pretend, that you actually do see in Sudan and South Sudan, where they just say, you know what, if, as long as you don't touch our our oil production facilities and refineries, we don't care how that money's spent. We don't care how what the 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 men, weapon, and equipment that were that has been given to you, along with ammunition and weapons, as long as you leave our oil and our resource collection process alone and and a lot of the African, East African countries are great with that. They're getting a, a ton of money with no questions asked. So there's a lot of infrastructure development going on that has a lot of Chinese money. And it's just they, China is is now with this base in Djibouti that uh, everyone you know is very concerned about Chinese military expansion. Well, the state, there's an op-ed in the state-owned uh, uh, news, news outlet, uh, Global Times, in China that says, well, China is strong now. You know, this is this is what we're doing. We're becoming a major country. This is this. We're becoming a superpower, which they've always been. But they're also wanting to start to flex their their muscles militarily. And that that has a huge potential since the United States really I, I, I want to say this. And this is just a personal opinion. I feel like the United States went all in on the Middle East only to have that completely cavitate on, onto itself. And just sectionalize off. Just I don't think the United States and its coalition really understood the tribal and clan differences of what they were doing as stabilizing that region. And we focused heavily on those oil fields in the Middle East and listened, I believe, and this, again, this is just my own personal opinion. We listened a lot to the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and what the Gulf states wanted to have happen and see in that region. And we kind of got caught up in a, in a giant quagmire, whereas China just went into went into Africa and said, hey, here's 30 billion dollars. We would like to put a pipeline from Juba all the way across to Mombasa. Is that OK with you guys? We don't care how you spend it. We don't give we don't give any issues to anyone about how they spent their money. We just don't want you to attack our pipeline. And of course, these 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 pseudo dictators and even dictators themselves take this money. Spend it how they want. The only thing the Chinese care about is, is, is gathering as many re natural resources as they possibly can and Chinese interest. That's, that's what they're looking at in, in, the, in the continent of Africa. And it's, it's been rather, rather largely un, un, underreported, mainly because nobody really sees any issue with what or any kind of uh, you know, withdrawal or any issue with what China is doing in Africa, because mainly Africa, if you think about it, nobody really understands what's going on there regardless. So what do you see big picture that's going on there then? Uh, big picture, I see I see a, a, a huge potential for the two biggest kids on the block to get into a to get into a little bit of a, a push pull here, a little shoving match. And it's it's it, it could potentially that spark could potentially be could potentially be that base in Djibouti. The Chinese are directly across from Camp Lemonier, who's, you know, has been there rather unimpeded for for a decade itself. The base in Djibouti is also very strategic as a very strategic location because China has also invested heavily in Ethiopia, heavily in, into Ethiopia's government, heavily into Ethiopia's infrastructure to include a, a fast light rail system that they are, 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 are hoping that will that will connect Ethiopia to their to Djibouti all the way to Khartoum. The interesting thing about that is is China is always looking like a spider trying to figure out how they can get their oil out of Sudan. And one of the one of the pipelines is obviously going through Khartoum, but another way is is on rail. And they're building a rail systems, a large rail systems to get their resources out. That one's going to Mombasa, another one through through the Ethiopian uh, terminals. 
it's not so much everyone should be worried about their military expansion. That's happening right now. Their, their industrial expansion is, is in the final phases. They're already connected. We, we can't stop that. They have their fingers in everything. But what we can't, I don't know what we can do other than try to sweeten the pot or try to lure some of these nations and some of these, these leaders away from China or at least get a, or at least get our fingers in the pot. And I don't see how we could do that. My background is basically strategic. I don't know anything about economic warfare. If we want to follow this thread just for a second, China wants to sell, wants to take those resources and turn them into things that they're going to sell back to us in the European market, right? Yes, that's what's fascinating is that we're basically financing their their industrial military expansion. <laughs> we are financing it. The consumer is. I'm not saying everybody stop buying things and, and, and live like Neanderthals you know, on a paleo diet and drying meat on their cars. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is if you every time look underneath anything that you're using, a, a glass, a cup, anything, everything that says made in China. Now, that's free trade commerce. You're absolutely correct. That's capitalism. But that money. Is financing a state run government. Anything that, that that country makes goes back to the state, and then that state uses to expand its its industrial, military industrial complex, its industrial complex. Anything to do with expansion, unfortunately, global consumers of Chinese products are somewhat, in some shape, fashion, or form, financing this expansion. We've brought up Al Shabab. Who are they? What do they want? How do they feel about China? Do we know? Uh, answer your, your last question first. I honestly don't know how Al-Shabaab personally feels about China. I do know that Al-Shabaab is, is very nationalist. They started off rather, rather early in the, in the, in the mid nineties, uh, during the, the, the Somali Islamic courts union, uh, development and kind of metastasized into a militant wing of Harakat Al-Shabaab al-Muhajadeen, which the Harakat Al-Shabaab or Al-Shabaab actually means youth. It just means the youth or actually it used to mean the boys because it because uh, another thing that plagues Africa, especially in East Africa, is the majority of the of the, the youth. And I'm talking um, ages between 12 up to uh, 25, 26 are really un- there's no employment. None whatsoever It's really hard. It's hard to find employment. Now, Mogadishu in Somalia is kind of having seeing an uptick in financial and uh commerce gains but the majority of the majority of the country is still living in well below the poverty line uh al-shabaab it's it's a it's a very strict adherent to salafism they're very it's a very uh very strict sharia law focused version of islam it's a very apocalyptic it's it's exactly the the same type of uh, salafism is exactly the same type of of Islamic Islamic teachings that the Islamic State follows. However, Al Shabab is has been committed to and has pledged fealty, if you will, to Al Qaeda since the early 2000s. And in Al Qaeda and the Islamic State, I guess those two those two groups really don't get along. Uh, one's more extreme than the other. The other one wants to do wants to uh, usurp uh, global jihad and global Sharia law, which is the Islamic State. And what's interesting about Al-Shabaab is Al-Shabaab really started off as a nationalist uh, Islamist movement. They wanted the entire nation of Somalia to be Muslim under Sharia law, Islamist rule. And of course, inside Somalia is a is is a very clan based. It's very clan based and it's very it's a very confusing, very 
convoluted. It twists upon itself. It's very, very uh, confusing, a very, very interesting structure of the of clans to subclans and what clan is 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 uh, loyal to this clan. And, and, and that's a lot of the reasons why their politics, their their government and politics is having such a hard time, because if you have a leader, that's a different clan member than that other clan could potentially go to war with this clan. What Al-Shabaab has done is it's really unified these tribes under the under their religious beliefs and views, but they also really, really control portions of the of the southern Somalia area with like with a really kind of an iron Sharia law type of fist. They look at any kind of form of UN help outside Western influence as invaders. Now all Somalis kind of look at it that way. That Somalia for Somalians. It's is they're very they're very prideful in their country. They're, they also don't like outside help, although they do need it and they do they have benefited from it. Al Shabaab kind of kind of twists that onto its onto itself and basically calls everybody a, a crusader and that they're trying to destroy their country to include Ethiopia and Kenya, which is also still very clan based. So how does someone like Eric Prince hope to break Al Shabaab? See, that's the thing that's I don't he I, I, he overtly is not trying to break Al Shabaab, but Eric Prince is steeped heavily in clandestine private military operations, private security operations. I think Eric Prince feels that he can take a take a, his security forces. I'm going to use that word strategically security forces into southern Somalia and without the handcuffs of political global, political, international output or outcry can really conduct a bloody, if not kind of steamrollish kind of counterinsurgency operation under the auspices of this being a security operation, basically clearing out whole swaths of Al-Shabaab controlled, you know, regions of Southern Somalia. Now, Eric Prince is going to have help with that because back in April when President Formaggio was uh, just got into office, he he swore to turn the country, the Somalia country into a war zone against Al-Shabaab. Gave them he gave Al-Shabaab 60 days amnesty period, which actually ended in the beginning of July. And after that, there was going to be a full on offensive. And some of my sources inside the, the Somali government, Somali military, basically said to me that this offensive is, is already been planned, it's ready to go, and they expect it to last no longer than two years. So al-Shabaab, according to the, the government of, of Somalia and, and the, the capital of Mogadishu and the president itself, al-Shabaab has a shelf life of two years where they're going to see a complete and total sweep of a military offensive from north to south. Now, the interesting thing about that is, is, is Al-Shabaab will just, just disappear into Kenya and eat in, into the, the, you know, the forest Kenyan and the forests of Ethiopia and do exactly what it's been doing for quite some time is just come back in an insurgency operation and hit, a, hit and run guerrilla attacks. So is Al-Shabaab ever going to be wiped out? More than likely, no. Will they be, de- will they be degraded and depleted? Yes. I think they, I think they're going to have to reconsolidate somewhere else. And then the best thing to do is, is uh, you know, they're they're more than likely going to disappear into Ethiopia, Kenya, and even Tanzania. And they've they've been they've been seeing a lot of uh, Al Shabaab folks down in in Tanzania, kind of setting up forward operating bases, but they they haven't heard anything about that in quite some time. Derek Gannon, thank you so much for coming on to War College and telling us all about East Africa. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank you very much. 
Thank you for listening to this week's show. War College was created by Jason Fields and Craig Hedick. Matthew Galt hosts the show and wrangles the guests. It's produced by me, Bethel Hobday. You can tweet us suggestions for future shows. We're at war underscore college. Thanks for listening.